0: Welcome to the award-winning show Holding Down the Fort by U.S. Vet Wealth. We returned for season six to answer the biggest
1: question for a career military families. So when are we going to get out and everything involved with answering this question?
0: I'm Jen Amos, creator and co-host of Holding Down the Fort and a Gold Star family member and veteran spouse. And I'm Jenny Lynn Stroop, co-host
1: and chief shower-upper here on Holding Down the Fort.
0: Together, we will converse with special guests From and for our military community to share knowledge and resources and relevant stories on how we can best pull down the fort while on active duty, going through transition, and into post-military life. Now, let's get into the show. When military spouses... Come together as a group. They become powerful. A quote by Heath Lee When was the last time you saw a monument to military spouses? Based on Heath Lee's research, there are absolutely none. Heath Lee is the author of The League of Wives, the untold story of the women who took on the U.S. government to bring their husbands home. Anne is the founding historian at the League of Wives Memorial Project in Coronado. As an advocate for women's history, Heath tells us the true story of the military spouses who formed the League of Wives, the National POW slash MIA organization, and the National League of Families for American Prisoners and Missing in Southeast Asia. Together, these military spouses battle Washington and Hanoi to bring their husbands home from Vietnam. With much anticipation, Heath hopes to see the League of Wives memorial project bring the League of Wives Memorial to Coronado. Heath, it was such a pleasure having you on our show. Thank you again so much for joining us. And in addition to that, I want to thank our show sponsor, U.S. Vet Wealth. In the latest episode of the Spouse Benefit Plan by U.S. Vet Wealth, episode seven, Is the Cost Worth the Benefit? A case study of rank 05 retiring at 20 years with the Survivor Benefit Plan. The description of this episode is as follows. Now that we've calculated Lieutenant Colonel Rick Howard's estimated retire pay, which we were able to do if you have been listening to the Spouse Benefit Plan by U.S. Vet Wealth in chronological order, I now walk us through the Survivor Benefit Plan subsidy program to calculate what could happen to Rick Howard and his spouse should they keep the Survivor Benefit Plan. I also elaborate more on the new terms mentioned in previous episodes, today's dollars, future dollars, and opportunity cost. Now, if you're planning on listening to this episode and wanting to get the most out of it, I highly recommend that you follow along by viewing the High 3 calculator and the SBP subsidy program, which will be provided in the show notes of this episode. Once again, this is episode seven titled, Is the Cost Worth the Benefit? A Case Study of Rank 05 Retiring at 20 Years with the Survivor Benefit Plan on the podcast show, The Spouse Benefit Plan by U.S. Wealth." With that said, thank you so much to our sponsor, U.S. BetWell. Now, please enjoy this exciting episode with Heat Lee. All right, here everyone, Jen Amos here, creator and co-host of Holding Down the Fort. And of course, as always, I have my co-host with me, Jenny Lynn Troop. Jenny Lynn, welcome back. Hey, so glad to be here today. Yes, we had an exciting offline conversation with our guest today. So I want to go ahead and just dive into it. Let me introduce you all to Heath Lee, who is the author of the book, The League of Wives, the untold story of women who took on the U.S. government to bring their husbands home. She also is a board member acting as the historian for the League of Wives Memorial Project in Coronado, And she has a very impressive background, which I'll probably pick her brain about quite often in this conversation. She comes from a museum education, historic preservation, and writing background. So without further ado, Keith, welcome to Holding Down the Fort podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, for sure. And I'm actually really excited to talk to you because I'm always extremely impressed with people in the civilian world, as I call it who have a deep understanding and empathy for the military community. And so I know for you, Keith, you have mainly been a civilian your entire life. And yet here you are having published this book, The League of Wives, and really explaining in detail you know, who these women are, what their history is like, which we'll dive into a little bit later. But yeah, I just want to start by getting some opening thoughts from you and you know, kind of speaking from that civilian perspective.
2: Yeah, well, it is interesting because, yes, my dad was in the Army briefly during peacetime, but really not, this was before I was born. So, not Mm -hmm. really ever been part of a military family. Having been a civilian my whole life, I ran across this story really by chance. And I had done a previous book about the Civil War, so I've always been very interested about women during wartime. Hmm. That it has been an interest of mine, but only from a civilian perspective. And I think it can be useful because a lot of the military wives I've worked with have said, you know, it took someone who is a civilian to look at this story and recognize the things that were not right about it. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm sure I know the military wives from the inside knew what wasn't right either, but I have a little bit more neutrality, I think, going in. So I think it's helpful because I can be pretty objective about it and did not have, you know, a beef one way or the other or really any opinions at all until I came into the story. And the way I came in was Phyllis Galanti, who is one of the heroines of the League of Wives story was a good family friend. And hmm. when she died, her papers ended up at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, where I had done a lot of work on my previous book. And the staff said, "Heath, we know you're looking for another book. I, I write only really about women and women's histories and kind of hidden histories. They knew I was looking for a new book and said, you need to see these papers. And it ended up, They were Phyllis's papers and my mother had been in Phyllis's book club for 30 years. So it was very serendipitous. It was kind of strange, you know, and things tend to, when they fall like that, I think there are signs you need to do this. And I spent two hours with those papers, which were all about the POW MIA wives during the Vietnam War, many centered in Coronado. That's where the story starts in the San Diego area. And then many also on the East Coast in the Virginia Beach, Norfolk area, which is closer to where I'm from in Richmond, and Phyllis was living in Richmond, Virginia when this all happened. So it all kind of converged. I looked at her papers for a couple of hours one Saturday and saw that they were full of this epic war story, really, which was about women's empowerment among military wives who were very conservative. They were not feminist. But they became very empowered along the way fighting for their husband's freedom. So it was just a very interesting story about women that I had never heard of. And and really, there was next to nothing written about these women at the time. So that intrigued me.
0: Well, I just love hearing all about this because at Holding on the Fort, we're all about amplifying the stories of military families, particularly our spouses. I think from a civilian perspective and this is also me coming from someone who just watched like all of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, like it's always focused on romanticizing, glorifying the veteran, you know, the veteran service member perspective. And actually one thing I noticed in in the MCU universe is that like even though they had veterans on the show like Captain America and Falcon and all that, sure. they- really amplified, they didn't display the families. They didn't really know the family side of what yeah. it was what it meant to truly sacrifice and serve in the military. So I love how you're all about amplifying women's stories, women's history. My first opening thought is, I'm really excited you're here.
1: And all of the things you shared, I just I love that you tell the military spouse story. You know, I was flipping through your book prior to coming on today. I read it one summer as a beach read. So anybody out there? Yes, it's nonfiction, but it is a beach readable.
2: Genuine. I love that. It is a good beach read.
1: It is. It is. Well, and it's fascinating. And I think I have been a military spouse through the post 9-11 era. And I think what really, not I think, I know, what really drew me into the book is that I just felt so many similarities. Now, my husband is not a POW or MIA, but between the two eras of service, there are often so many similarities drawn, like between how it started, between how it ended, between how long they both were. You know, but really, we do often miss that family story. And I think reading this, you know, there were just so many things that I have felt as a post 911 spouse advocating for mental health that I just felt so connected to in this that, you know, a lot of the things we hear about you know, our air of service is like those invisible wounds of war. And I'm here to tell you they're far from invisible. And it was like reading right. some of this about how these women advocated for the release of their husbands and the release of their benefits and different things like that. I mean, mm-hmm. I have felt so acutely watching paper after paper and news outlet versus news outlet, all these invisible wounds. And I'm sitting here going, it's not invisible in my house. No. I am seeing. All these things. And so for for me, it gave me a lot of hope that like when spouses get together, you know, one of the chapter titles is a reluctant sorority. And there are many of us that I have found through my own advocacy that like, yeah, that's who we are. Like we are reluctant to say that this has happened at our house and to our service member. And also we're here to make sure that other people don't have to also join that sorority. Right,
2: right oh, that's wonderful to hear. I mean, really, that means a lot. Because I, I do think, you know, in the 60s, too, PTSD was not discussed, you know, and, you know, that whole thing was only diagnosed during the Vietnam War, there wasn't even a name, you know, it was kind of like going back to shell shock during mm-hmm. World mm-hmm. War One, and, you know, all that, these kind of sort of weird ways to say it that were not really what it was. But That is something that Sybil was so brave about in the book, you know, because that in the 60s and 70s, you know, you were seen as weak if you needed to get help from a psychiatrist. And thank God that has changed dramatically. But I still think, and you ladies could tell me more about that, but I still think there's some shame and guilt around things that should just be treated like any illness you would have. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why that's still there, but that's true in the civilian world as well. Mm-hmm. But maybe more so in the military world where you're supposed to be macho and brave and, you know, all of that. So I'm glad to hear that was helpful.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. You're talking about the 60s. My dad served in the 80s and 90s, and he had struggled with suicidal ideation. And yes, he was able to get counseling. But for the most part, it seemed like like a Band-Aid and mm-hmm. unfortunately, mm-hmm. toward the end of his service, although we don't know the full details of why we had potentially lost him, one of the theories is that he may have possibly taken his life. And there's yeah. been evidence that my dad kind of internalized a lot of things. So, you know, I'm here thinking, oh my gosh, like the 80s and 90s, like they definitely didn't value mental health. No. But you're telling me about the 60s. I'm like, oh, oh my gosh, I can only imagine, you. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. what the yeah. 60s are. And, Even fast forward to today, although Jenny Lynn and I are huge on talking about mental health on the show, we probably bring it up like every episode, practically. One thing we talked about with our last conversation with Grant Conn is that you're taught as a sailor to put your ship, your shipmates, and then yourself last. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's part of the stigma is like, well, that's not part of the priority list to put your mental health first. Interesting.
2: Mm -hmm. See, that Mm -hmm. helps me. I mean, I always learn something when I talk to military spouses, because that's interesting. I did not really know that. But it made Mm -hmm. sense. And, you know, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff in the book, too, about the code of conduct and how they had Mm -hmm. to revise this for the POWs who are told to, they basically have to die, you know, and not give up anything. And that was not realistic. When you're being tortured for eight years or seven years, they had to bring down their expectations of mentally how much they could take. And so that's all revised, as you know, when they come back. And I don't know how reasonable it is even now, but it certainly was super unrealistic at the point of the Vietnam War. So you know, when I look back to the 60s, and even now, we're still probably in the medieval phase of psychiatry. So it's just sort of a continuum. But the 80s and 90s, you know, I agree with you, Jen, They that was not great either. Mm-hmm. I really feel like it's only been very recently mm-hmm. that we're getting a handle on this in the civilian community as well as, well as the military mm-hmm. community. But when you're told to put everybody first, but yourself, of course, it's going to be even tougher. So what is a theme I tried to bring up in the book with the ladies, because Sybil was so brave. She goes on the record about her psychiatric help and how much it helped her. And I know she did that to let some of those other women know that it's okay to Mm -hmm. seek help Mm -hmm. if you need it. And that was radical at that time.
0: Yeah. I mean, in the 60s, I mean, I wasn't born yet, so I can only,
2: (laughs) again, I can only- It was just not even there. Like a yeah. the Navy psychiatrist, I did have a field day at the end of the book talking about, you know, what they told them about, you know, they were gonna have all kinds of trauma and particularly sexual problems. And of course mm. women all laughed on that last one. That apparently was not a problem when they came home. So I just tried to <laughs> fade to black on that part. But it did it cracked me up because all the ladies just laughed hysterically about that last part when I asked them. But the Navy psychiatrists scared the, the, these women to mm-hmm. death, particularly mm-hmm. the Navy wives, about they were going to be violent. They might hit them. Mm-hmm. They were going to be, you know, and, and none of these things turned out to be true. So mm-hmm. we're still, I think, in the dawn of psychiatry. And like, you know, in 200 mm-hmm. years, they'll be laughing about how medieval we all are. So, you know. <laughs> It's just an ongoing learning yeah. process, I
0: think. Yeah. Yeah. I want to put an emphasis on the League of Wives, you know, the women that you have mentioned in this book, because I think that for them to have dealt with so many issues, of, uh, you know, psychological issues, financial issues, which we'll probably touch into a little later. The fact is that they banded together you mm-hmm. know and i think that's one of the major themes that we wanted to talk about really about your book today is just the power of military spouses coming together and more importantly when we think about leadership in the military we think about the service members and and all that but here we're talking about the leadership within military spouses so tell us a mm-hmm. little bit more about that
2: yes well i think that's one of the best examples of grassroots leadership that i have ever seen and and i love politics i'm always watching and i'm like People, go read my book, not to read the book, but look at how these wives handled consensus building, working across the aisle, leadership, modeling, mm-hmm. you know, ethical practices. I mean, I, I have spoken to so many leadership groups since this book came out. Mm-hmm. People who have picked up on that, even before I did, I was like, this really is a case example of leadership. Mm-hmm. It's female leadership, but it would apply. It doesn't matter gender wise. It's just an example of wonderful grassroots leadership where the individual military spouse was not taken seriously. But when they come together as a group, they become powerful. They are Mm -hmm. able to get things done. People are scared of them in the government. Like Alexander Haig is terrified of these women. Like they scare the crap out of him. So there's a great (laughs) scene where he basically rubs a hole through his pocket. He has change in his pocket and he's so nervous. He rubs a hole in his pocket and all the change falls out when Sybil is yelling at him about, we need to see Henry Kissinger right now. He was the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor who had bi monthly meetings with these women. One, because they wanted to help, but two, because the Nixon administration knew these women were political allies that they needed. They needed to get Mm -hmm. them on board. They were voters, big time voters and, you know, allies if they were treated correctly, which Nixon realized LBJ did not, but that's a whole other thing we can get into. So, but for the leadership, yeah, I mean, you could not find a better case example Mm -hmm. of this. And it really is the individual voice is often lost, but the group sort of dynamic. That is what pushes these women through and gets national attention and international attention.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, Jenny Land being an active duty military spouse and being heavily involved in the spouse community, I'm sure you have some thoughts about this. Of course I do. I mean, and also <laughs> I'm
1: looking at all of my notes in the book, you know, and 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 Heath just spoke to it a bit. But one of the things she writes about over and over in the book is like how in this situation, rank and who who your spouse was really melted away. Yeah. And that working hard and collaboratively was what defined the wives. And then, you know, there's another line. It says, instinct and common sense were rapidly taking the place of c- protocol among wives. And I think that, again, as an active duty spouse from the post-9-11 era, like, those are the things that I continue to see as a spouse you know, just kind of over and over is like there are all these issues that we face as military families. You know, now I'm part of I am the Armed Forces Insurance 2022 Naval Station Norfolk spouse of the year. And so I got to spend a week in, in May with other people who both won this year and are alumni alumni of the uh the program from other years. And it it was literally walking into a room of these and now it's it's spouses, it's not just wives. right. We're male spouses too. Right. who have seen an issue in our community and gone, hey, we're taking this on, and it's yeah. everything from food insecurity to, wow. you know, crummy housing experiences mm-hmm. with privatized housing to a lot mm-hmm. of mental health folks. I mean, it's really, you know, there are needs there. and because we are able to both operate without rank and without the protocol, required by the military, there is a great groundswell of people, you know, through every service era that are able to come together and and really make change in our community. And again, I kept seeing that throughout the book. And it was like, for me, it was very much like a, okay, you're on the right track. Like, if this is the thing that is motivating you, like finding the other people like that Mm -hmm. is going to keep going. And it was like, okay, even if it's hard, with the right group of people, you're going to be able to make change. And and you know, I mean, I'm I'm happy to say like my <laughs> mental health advocacy journey started in 2013. So, gosh, mm-hmm. almost 10 years. That sounds so weird. What? Wow. And I do believe that we've seen some change because of the many voices out there that are able to operate both within the military community. Because we, you know, spouses straddle this weird gap of. We have access to all things military with yep. an ID. I can get on base. I can, you know, do yep. all these things. But also, I'm a civilian, and so there's, mm. you know, that level of like you talk about Sybil and the other wives in the book. Like there is a level of we are able to go to Congress and advocate for things in a way that our active duty service member is not because yeah. they're wearing the uniform. And so, yep, learning how to use that that power for good to make change for the community is just, you know, I love that about the book. And and like I said, it really. Resounded with me in a way that was like, okay, like this stuff does matter. And there is a way to make change from within.
2: I love hearing that too. And I see that because I'm connected now with all these groups and different people and, you know, where you are, Jenny Lynn, as well as in Coronado. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's amazing what Navy spouses are doing. It's, I mean, it's that's what I think Sybil, if she were alive, would be so proud of Mm -hmm. is that they were, you know, kind of the, the ones that broke the mold. And then it goes from there. It may not be like always upward, onward and upward, you know, it's up and down. But I, it's, it's amazing the difference that I'm seeing now versus what I studied in the mm-hmm. 60s and 70s, where they really were told to keep quiet and shut up and stay out of the way. It's like unbelievable anybody listened to that. But it's true of women across the board in both worlds. Things are, are changing, thank God a lot. Yeah. So that's great to hear.
1: Well, I mean it's funny. I I you know, I see reference in here is like the manuals, the spouse manuals. Oh god. <laughs> yes. You know, which like I would be willing to say most people of my service era like have no idea those even exist, much <laughs> less like follow them and so it's really <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean it is. It's it's fascinating to see the parallels but also the great disparities and like you know, yeah. I only have the Navy wife book because I was working on doing a new edition of it. So I bought mm-hmm. an old one. Like I have an original like World War II era, like the oh, um no. the Ford was written like right after Pearl Harbor and yes. it's like and I have loved it as a historical document. Yeah. And also was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I cannot imagine being handed this like the day you become a Navy spouse, and them going, so just follow all this and you'll be good. Because really, unbelievable. You know, it's great. Yeah. You know, having your white gloves and doing your tea and having like appetizers in the refrigerator at all times. But like right. the real nitty gritty of like navy life isn't in that book. Not in that like, book.
2: nor is so, it What do you do? I was like, where's the chapter? My husband's been shot down. What do yeah. I do? No, this yeah. not in any of them. And I was working from '60s manuals where. Obviously, World War II had happened, and Korea had happened. Mm-hmm. Not one thing in there about that. So what does that yeah. say? You know, like yeah. I didn't analyze in the book, but I think in retrospect, what that says to you is that it was seen. I do mention in the book, it was seen as a bit of a contagion. If there was a wife, wow. you know, at this time, only women, you know, spouses that we didn't have male spouses at this time. but they were made to move off base too, in many cases after mm-hmm. 90 days, because they would infect was a word I saw, like mm. infect the other spouses. It's a morale thing, because if mm-hmm. it can happen to one spouse, it can happen to anyone. Mm-hmm. So it mm-hmm. infects morale, it brings everyone down. I mean, there's nothing really that's helpful in there about that. There are some helpful things that I give credit for, like deployments and how to handle it, protocol, etc. But a lot of it is about making jelly molds and dressing a certain way. There was even a list of like negligee to have on your wedding night. Okay, there's no way a woman wrote that, even though there are two women that write all those spouse books. I mean, there's definitely a lot of propaganda in there and a lot of gratuitous things that just seem to get slipped in there. But it killed me that it was these two Navy wives that were writing these manuals. Mm -hmm. And of Mm -hmm. course, the Marine wife was even worse, like blaming, you know, it is your fault as a wife, like if there's an accident, and you've had an argument before your husband flies, it's your fault, the blood will be on your hands, like crazy stuff like that. So I saw those manuals as, you know, very unhelpful would be an understatement. I mean, they were propaganda, they were scary, they were laughable. They did have some good things that yeah. were useful, but really, when you get in dire straits, there was just nothing for you, yeah, so i'm I have heard that they are often given as joke gifts now at like engagement <laughs> sh- at baby showers <laughs> or engagement showers. I hope that's the case because they were <laughs> horrifying to me.
1: I mean, I will say that on the chapter of what you're supposed to have when you get married, I did take a picture and send it to my dad and be like, where is my fur coat? Like, Matthew's really missing out. (laughs) You know, I mean, there is some stuff that, like, you look at that, and it's like, I mean, it is really a glimpse of history because there are those things we don't follow anymore. But when it comes down to, like, that practical, like, how do you do military life? And honestly, that's why I'd been approached about updating the Navy one because... There is no chapter on mental health. Like, what are you supposed to do? And it is mental health is similar. I mean, you know, Jen and I've had the conversation about Gold Star before, like, even now. And I have several friends who are Gold Star family members, you know, from siblings and children there is still a very real fear in the military community that if you associate too much with folks who are gold star, it's somehow catching, you know, and that. that,
0: Oh, gosh. I didn't know that. Thanks for being my friend, Jenny Lynn. You're welcome. I mean, I actually wrote
1: about it on Memorial Day two years ago, if you want to check (laughs) it out. Oh, Um, I will. (laughs) You know, and it's something that it's one of those just if it can happen to them, it can happen to me. And it's not that by association, it's going to happen. But I mean, the human brain is a weird thing. And you kind of go, ooh, like, that's too close. It's too close to home, I think is the real thing. And you know, it's the same with mental health. Well, oh, my gosh, like, if her husband only went over there and did this, Mm -hmm. and he has, you know, traumatic brain injury and PTSD, then if my husband goes over and does XYZ, like, what does that mean for me? And so people do tamp it down and try not to talk about it. And I think, you know, for, for my own self, I've found that talking about it has brought far more good than not talking about it and has brought people on board. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's no quote unquote manual for it. And at this point with the internet, like there's so so many Googleable things That's really the place most people go. And still, at the end of the day, people are going to the groups of people they trust. You know, Jen and I have that conversation on here a lot is like, I mean, I don't go to the dentist when I move to a new place without asking like the military spouse group in that area where to go because we all have the same insurance. They're going to tell you who takes it. They're going to tell you who's not very nice. Like, and so there's a lot to be said for again, that banding together of people within the military community to support and uplift the the rest of us.
0: Yeah, I think that's really powerful. It goes back to sort of the thought of, you know, we're better together, we're stronger together yeah. mm-hmm. kind of thing. And that African proverb that goes like, if you want to go fast, go alone, if you want to <laughs> go far, go together. Mm-hmm. And to, you know, this whole conversation is really, I mean, so far, the the theme, what I'm kind of getting is just that the importance of community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think we really talked about it at such a deeper level today, Jenny Lynn, it's like, we often say that, oh, like do that, because, you know, it's good to have connections, but, it, but, you know, to push law, you know, to push for certain things in Congress. It's like it, 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 that community building is so, or that community aspect is excruciatingly important. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And I try to give, you know, be fair in the book, even about the protocol guides, because the one thing they do that I think is helpful is to present to these new spouses, the community that's Mm -hmm. there and the resources Mm -hmm. that are there. So that is why I don't throw those books completely under the bus. And I think it would be great, Jenny Lynn, if there was an updated, real military spouse guide that was helpful and had chapters about Mm -hmm. mental health, about what if you are taken prisoner? I mean, look at Ukraine right now. Mm -hmm. There's a huge POW thing going on Mm -hmm. there. I mean, it's become... Something we thought would never happen again mm-hmm, is happening. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I would love to see somebody. I mean, that would be a great book, like a really good military spouse guide across, you know, for Marine wives, for Army wives, Navy wives, you know, mm-hmm. Air Force wives take that basis and make it good, you know, make mm-hmm, it not mm-hmm. propaganda, make it a useful tool, which I mean, I think it was half meant to be a useful tool and it was half used by the military as a Propaganda tool, so let's take mm-hmm. propaganda out and make it a hundred percent a resource guide. It would be a wonderful right. book to have. So you know, and that was presented. This is your community. this can be helpful to you. These mm-hmm. are the resources. Mm-hmm. That was the value in it, I think.
0: Yeah, I'm just reflecting on everything that you all are sharing, and before I get to my next thoughts, I want to go ahead and share an ad from our sponsor U.S Bet Wealth. For our service members at the rank of E7, E8, E9, O5, and O6, it's a fact that you've invested decades to earn your military pension. At US Vet Wealth, we ensure that you don't wait another 20 years for your second retirement. We do this by showing you how to privatize your military retirement pay, however you want the next chapter of your life to look like, whether it's getting that supplementary paycheck because you want to work, not because you have to work, starting a business, or you know what? Taking a break before figuring out your next career or adventure. Privatizing your military pension will give you the ability to decide what autonomy, impact, and work-life balance could look like for you in post-military life. Download our free white papers today titled Navigate Your Retirement Pay and Survivor Benefit Plan Alternatives to learn more. Our white papers are available for the following ranks: E7, E8, E9, O5, and O6 and are available to download for free. With no email opt-in necessary at usvetwealth.com. That's U S V E T W E A L T H dot com. And just going back to the League of Wives and just, I'm just in- incredibly impressed with what they were able to accomplish. And obviously, if people want to learn more, you should totally get the book and read it. I wanted to talk more about the additional challenges that these wives had faced, Heath. And sure. in addition to the psychological turmoil and their husbands not being there, they also were dealing with a financial turmoil. <laughs> and oh, so tell us a little bit about that because it just makes me angry. It just makes me look, angry to think that like, in addition to everything that they had to yeah. go through and they had to figure out on their own, they had to lead on their own and depend on each other because they couldn't depend on other you know, resources or people. Right. They were also dealing with a financial issue. So tell us about that.
2: Right. Well, let's start with anger. So, yes, the whole time I was writing this book, I was so mm. mad. I was like throwing things, <laughs> screaming. My family's like, What is the matter with you? But it just made me so mad at everyone. Like, and I do think anger, like, people are like, Oh, don't be angry. It's destructive. No, if you channel it correctly, mm-hmm. it's useful. And I yeah. think that's what. I tried to remember that's what these wives did. Like they used their anger at how Mm. unjust this was. Instead of just complaining about it, they form groups and they lead and they get something done. So it took years in some cases with the finances, but to go back, I mean, it starts with the, you know, their husbands are shot down or missing and they can't cash checks. Mm. Jane Denton, one of the heroines of the book is in, right in Virginia Beach at the PX. And she goes there and she's trying to cash a check and they won't let her cash the check because she doesn't have an address for her husband because he's in the Hanoi Hilton. So he is in prison and there is no address and no one can give them one or get to him. So she's like screaming this and crying and you know, eventually it, it doesn't really get resolved, but they kind of make them understand But that's kind of the baseline. And then the big thing I read about in the book was the 10% savings plan. So at this time, all the families who's at this time, just the husbands that were servicemen in combat zones would have access to a lovely 10% savings plan where the the pay could go and really multiply and, and grow. So it was decided by the all wise US government along with the military that These men were not contributing to the U.S. economy because they were in prison. And so they could not be, the families consequentially could not be part of the plan. So the women at first think this has got to be an oversight or a mistake. And they go to the comptroller general. And I found the papers where the comptroller general of the United States rules that no, they aren't contributing to the U.S. economy. So these families still cannot oh contribute. God. And this is when yeah. Sybil and her gang go on the war path. And they're like, mm. what the living hell? No. And so they make a big stink with the media. This is where the media can be very useful. They mm-hmm. learn to use the media, the newspapers, television, etc. Obviously, we have no social media at this time, but you know what's available, they use. And mm-hmm. within a year to a year and a half, they did resolve this so that these families could be participating, but the blood, sweat and tears they had to put in for a basic right. Mm -hmm. That was probably one of the things that made me the maddest of all in the Mm -hmm. book. I mean, in addition to the blatant sexism that was just across the military and across the government, even worse than the government, it was just outrageous. So You know, this is—they're resolving this while being chased around the desk of congressmen. You know, like there was a lot of that going on, which I didn't honestly write enough about in the book. But many tales about that when they go to D.C. I mean, it's just—it's unbelievable what they things we would never have to put up with now, or hopefully not. Were just, you know, normal. This was just baked into the fabric of, of how things worked. So that was very anger-inducing, to say the Mm -hmm. least. Financially, also, remember at the time, just with the way the laws were for women, I mean, we were still just in this extremely, I mean, it's a different era, but it was so sexist. You couldn't Mm -hmm. take a loan out. You couldn't get a new Mm -hmm. car. You couldn't rent in some places if you were a single woman, even though your husband was in prison, not in Regular prison, but in the Hanoi Hilton, you a prisoner of war didn't matter, you were still a single woman. So it was just mm-hmm. rife with all kinds of financial injustices, uh, some due to sexism, and some just due to the military and the government being wi- willfully blind to the mm-hmm. problems of, of military families.
0: I think willfully blind is the key word there. It's kind of like yeah. they do have the means to learn and know. But they it to me, I, I'm given the impression that they didn't want to know.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah. It was I mean, and, and there's a lot in the book about LBJ's great society, you know, his domestic programs, they did not include women. They did not include um, the spouses of prisoners of war and missing He because that was not going to help his reelection campaign. He wanted this shoved under the rug. And I do think that was part and parcel of why they were denying a lot of this Financial assistance because it was you know this was just going to make a big stink. Well, that was mm-hmm. stupid because the wives then used the media to make an even bigger stink to get it resolved. So it was also politically really dumb. Um, so you know, but yeah. I enjoyed that part. I you know yeah I, the I, revenge. I, I try to be objective, but when my <laughs> ladies were not being treated right, I did begin to take it very personally. So I had fun going after LBJ on that because it was just so blatant.
0: Yeah, it's like what do you expect? Like they're just going to be yeah. quiet about he all just, this?
2: Well, he did. See, he thought they'd yeah. roll over and take it. And that was that was a bad gamble he made and he lost. So, and notice he loses the election and everything <laughs> yeah. else. So, that was kind of kind of exciting at a certain point. Cuz he just <laughs> treated them so badly and then President Nixon is great. He gets it. He's politically much smarter about this particular matter because mm-hmm. he's he is They are allies. They need to be treated well. Now, this was politically expedient for him, too. These are Mm -hmm. a silent majority. These are conservative military wives. That is part of his base. So I'm not saying it was always entirely, you know, out of the goodness of his heart, but I think he was smart (laughs) enough. I do think he cared a lot about military families. There's a lot of evidence about that. And he also, um, it was politically expedient to give these women that platform. So it's interesting to just see the differences between one administration and the other. It was a sea change between the two, all documented with extensive mm-hmm. inlets. Like, this is not my personal opinion. it It, it is borne yeah. all by the research. It It's just all there. It's all on record. So, but now you'll be maybe more aware of it.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I imagine from an author slash historian perspective, this must have been so like exciting for you to like follow the story yeah. you know and you know gather all this evidence and documentation to you know craft craft your book the way that you did i mean it's incredible and i imagine that it's a very gratifying satisfying experience
2: <laughs> oh very when you can substantiate and I, you know that's the problem with so much too, i think kind of pop history and and books with no I mean, I always probably do too much documentation, but I try to use as many primary sources as possible, as many oral history interviews with the women, the politicians from the time. I mean, my job is to lay the cards out and and let you all decide. But there are some things that were so blatant, like the treatment of one administration versus the other, Mm -hmm. worn out by the documentation. It was just obvious. So it wasn't hard. I wasn't going in trying to prove anything. So, you know, to to see it laid out, mm-hmm. it was exciting to sort of develop the path and then find out what, how were they treated, who treated them well, who did not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's all on, on record, but you do have to do with women's history more digging because people did not write a lot of this down. So, yeah. mm-hmm. oral histories for the women were really the basis, but the policies we're all in government memos and, you know, media reports and, and things like that. So that's why it takes me four to five years a book. My editor wishes I would be a lot shorter, but you know, <laughs> I'm like, I can't, these are, it just, you know, I feel like I, I want to have as deep a dive as I can. So I can be very fluent in, in talking about it and explaining it. So yeah, this takes the time to bake that it takes, you know, and then hopefully you get a good result.
0: Yeah, my philosophy is to build things right, not fast. And it sounds very much like your approach as well. And it's like you're doing justice for these women. And I think Mm -hmm. you really did.
1: In listening to all of this and like hearing the book really come to life through Heath talking, I mean, I've read the book and there was a lot of it that was very alive for me then, but like hearing even more like behind the scenes, I think I'm coming away from this conversation with like, man, So often people just really miscalculate the level of grit that it takes to be a military family and the willingness to like make things right. You know, the current like buzzword for military life is resiliency. Let me go on record on this podcast by saying, no, thank you. Please stop telling me I'm resilient. I don't want to hear that. It takes an incredible amount of energy to continue to get back up after all of like the knocking down. You know, I think that the term we prefer in our family is gritty. Um, We got a (laughs) lot of grit to be able to continue to stand our ground when things don't quite go our way. You know, and the other thing that came to mind is... There were a lot of things that seem to be like swept under the rug, or you know, this'll it'll get better if we don't deal with it. Mm-hmm. And that kind of moves to another ter- another term we use often in the street house, which is maliciously ignorant. Like it's one thing to be dumb, mm-hmm. like and, and not not know and not understand and really have no context for something. It's another when people are presenting you with fact after fact and experience after experience. And your continued answer well is well, it's not that big of a deal. Like that switches over into a very hurtful or malicious, you know, type of ignorance that you know I would have hoped would have ended with this. Yeah. <laughs> um, right, Benign
2: neglect is what Sybil calls it. And mm-hmm. you know, LBJ, she absolutely hates LBJ, so some of that <laughs> comes from her but she's like, you know, the ben- the thing that made her the maddest of all mm-hmm. in, in this was the benign neglect from the government. Just yeah. the w- but it's a willful neglect. I mean, mm-hmm. they know the whole 10% savings plan is a, is a great example, but there are mm-hmm. other, many other issues. And it is a sweeping under the rug. And I mm-hmm. hear you, um, Jenny Lynn, about the resilience. Like, that is just ridiculous, like to <laughs> bang someone against the wall a hundred times and be like, but you're so resilient that yeah. sucks, and that's yeah. Yeah, those ladies <laughs> experienced it. I know you're still experiencing it. It makes me upset for you because you know you can't expect someone to come back a hundred times yeah. like that's just ridiculous, but that was what was expected, and I still think it is kind of expected that. Military spouses will be the hardiest of all and they will overcome all the obstacles, but it's also unfair. It's like a superhero kind of thing, like a Marvel mm-hmm. thing that they're trying to put on you. it's is sometimes not humanly possible after a while. So that is
1: a fact. Yeah. I no longer really um, take that as a compliment. I'm kind of <laughs> like, would you actually like to hear the story? Because it's really hard to yeah. continue to be asked to be resilient over and over and over again. And you know, I can say that with like eight years of counseling under my belt and a lot of like work in a 12 step program. Like yeah. the fact that I am resilient takes a ton of effort and right. work like to be a healthy human being, despite the chaotic conditions around you takes a lot of work. Right. And, you know, one of, uh, actually one of our previous guests, um, uh, Doc Springer, you know, uses mm-hmm. the term psychologically elastic And I have come to like take that on, you know, in addition to gritty and like, I'm really tired. Like there is nothing I'd like more most days than to lay in bed an extra couple of hours and not have to deal with the 50,000 things that are on my list for that day, you know. But in my mind, I can work it out. Like I can be physically, I think it's given me the freedom to acknowledge that I am physically tired and mentally and emotionally tired and also still get up and do the thing. Right. Without being called resilient, which I now take a lot of umbrage with. You know, I think like many things, it started as a, a buzzword to be a compliment and to right. talk about the military community that now many of us, including my children, who are like, Mom, really don't ask us to do that again, please. Like it's really hard to make friends over and over and over again. I'm like, right. I know. Right. Right. You know, that we we as a family have taken a slightly different route and really focus on like what can we do to be healthy? Like we're mm-hmm. not going to use that resiliency word anymore. Mm.
2: <laughs> I'm taking that word off my
1: list. I don't like it <laughs> Thank you. That <laughs> That's my campaign for the end of resilience. <laughs>
2: thank, thank you. I will never use that word ever again, particularly with <laughs> military families. No more. No more. Yeah. But I like psychologically elastic. Mm-hmm. And I, and I mm-hmm. think the yeah. League of Wives is a great example of oh. being psychologically elastic, like expanding to fit the circumstances as mm-hmm. opposed to like shrinking in and not reducing mm-hmm. To deal, and also kind of a adap- it, it's adapting, but it's also outsmarting. Like, where is the way around? Circumventing might be a good word. They circumvented mm. all the time. You know, the top brass, like things like strapping a recording device to your bra and recording what the State Department was saying, and then bringing it back to the Navy spouses so they can discuss mm-hmm. it. Which, of course. Now people would think it's terrible, but I mean, you know, you got to do what you got to do because they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. So we need to all be aware of what's being said, share it and then and figure this out. So that was a whole weird thing, too, between the State Department and the military, like the State Department would be saying one thing. But then naval intelligence would be like, well, we didn't know that. Well, what? And so there was, you know, there was a siloing that you probably maybe still see between the government and the military, where they should be working collaboratively on problems, yes. in this case, yes. the POW problems, but they are so territorial that they cannot work together. Boy, does it yes. sound like Democrats and Republicans. Does it sound like <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it's just like... Nobody is collaborative. And, and yeah. the ladies in my book were so collaborative. I mean, yeah. it's just the perfect example right now of working together across the aisle, across rank, across race, across branches mm-hmm. to get to mm-hmm. one goal, whatever it mm-hmm. is, and maybe a mm-hmm. narrowing of goals and agreeing that we're not going to all agree, but let, let's work for the common good on whatever this is. It just, that seems to have disappeared for the moment. I hope maybe people will read the book and it will inspire them to do that. Because I I just found it so refreshing. It's so not like what we're seeing today. I agree. (laughs) Getting into very heavy topics, which we won't get into. But I mean, oh my goodness, it's such a rare example, I think, of, of that ability to do that. So... Yeah, for Sybil Stockdale for president. <laughs> <laughs> and, and all so those women and <laughs> members, Andrea Rander and Jake Denton, and like, I mean, they, they're incredible. Like their natural instincts were so good yeah. for what they should have done. So they're my personal heroines for sure.
0: Yeah. And yeah. to put an emphasis on the collaborative spirit, yeah. you know, like you said, is it seems really difficult to find nowadays in today's times. On a side note, this is part of why I love podcasting because I feel like it's one of the rare spaces I get to have to find common ground with people and actually collaborate with people. Um, Wherein, you know, when it comes to like social media, for example, it's very like highlight reels and clickbait and, you know, very polarizing content that it is really difficult to find common ground in that kind of space. So I feel really grateful that, you know, the podcasting community exists or podcasting in general, because it's a long form type of medium where you could really like have conversations like this, Mm -hmm. which I'm extremely grateful for. So even though I may not be like the wives in any way, I do hope that, you know, we sort of get to celebrate them by collaborating (laughs) on this conversation today and uh, really uplifting women, and especially women in history. Agree. My favorite topic, for sure. The only thing I'll ever write about. (laughs) I love it. I love it. (laughs) I want to go ahead and transition and actually talk about another theme in your book, which is about transition. So I kind of use transition in my transition. and. Part of why I bring that up is because the theme for holding down the fort this year is all about answering that question for career military families of when are we going to get out and kind of everything around that. So, give us a couple of examples in the book, Keith, that the listeners can look forward to. Touches upon the themes of transition.
2: Oh gosh, yes. Well, I mean, there's a there's a huge transition when the men come home. That's immediately what comes to mind. So Mm. these women are international diplomats. They are leaders. They are at the White House, like helping to make policy. They are helping in the war. And then the men come home and it's like, okay, back to the bake sale, you know? And there's, <laughs> no, there's no way that they can go back to the bake sale. Like they're not <laughs> going to be baking brownies anytime soon. But the men remember, it's almost like that tale of Rip Van Winkle. They've been almost essentially asleep for eight years. Like when they come mm-hmm. back, they come pile all these sort of six to eight year timelines mm-hmm. for the men of the news. I mean, they don't even mm-hmm. know men have walked on the moon. So mm-hmm. they yeah. are still kind of trapped in, in a, like almost a decade, like in a 50s mentality, let's say. Yeah. These women are, are wives of the 50s and 60s, but they're now in the 70s. They're in the era yeah. of feminism and civil rights and gay rights and all of these things kind of swirling around. So they have really advanced that way. And the, a lot of the men, not really by any fault, they just haven't been there. So they're like, mm-hmm. totally, it's like a time traveler that's dropped into a new era, literally. So the big transition, I think, is is first with the wives and the husbands, like adjusting to each other, Mm -hmm. adjusting to a switching of roles there and also adjusting to the fact that the women are the rescuers. Like, remember, we all know pilots, right? Like another favorite subject for me. And of course I love Top Gun and went to see that and had to go see that as cheesy as it was. It was fun. And I love seeing all the, you know, the jets and stuff. Like I have a weakness for that, but (laughs) I mean, they're super cute, good looking, usually. Yes. And they're total badasses and they know it. Mm -hmm. So that's not good because they know it. And these women are essentially married to, you know, to Tom Cruise, you know, to mm-hmm. this Maverick <laughs> kind of person that used to be a badass, but now their wife has rescued them. So I think that's for them kind of emasculating to begin with. So some of them have major problems with that. Some of them do not, on the other hand. Some of the most masculine men in this, uh Jerry Denton's a good example. Jerry Denton is like the Bruce Willis of Vietnam. Like he is a total, like, you are not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to resist to the fullest extent. He's very masculine, but he gives his wife full credit for Mm. his rescue and same with Jim and Sybil Stockdale. Like they are, those guys like totally know that their wives did that. Now it takes them a little while because they don't know what the women have done until they get home. But when they realize it, they fully acknowledge that. Some of them are not that way. Some of them, I think it's been very hard to acknowledge that mm-hmm. that role. So there, there's a lot of transition between the male and female role, the who's in charge, you know, who's the leader of the family because these women have also had to be the leader, the mother and father essentially to the mm-hmm. children. So then there's the children, the transition between having no dad at home just not just mom but a mother who is mother and father and then they have this person that in some cases they don't even know because they were like two years old when they were shot down Mm -hmm. or the mia families where dad does not never comes home and they don't know they transition from maybe knowing that he's missing to knowing he's been kia he's been killed you know a lot Mm -hmm. of that happened towards the end of the war so, I mean, it's a huge shift in so many ways. But the one, I guess, that interested me most was the leadership roles, you know, the transitioning of being an, an international diplomat spy, and in some cases, I don't know if that word is really the best word, but, um, you know, working with naval <laughs> intelligence um, to being a mom again. and And that was really hard. Um, Sybil writes about that, how difficult that was mm-hmm. to basically come back down to earth. And even though it was a horrible time, that she would never know a time that exciting again. So it's, it's just full of transitions, getting back to being a family, you know, after not being together for so long. So I could go on and on, but that that's really the top stuff that comes to mind.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting how, you know, there's a lot of transitions internally and then there's transitions amongst the family members. So I do appreciate you kind of giving those examples and not sharing everything because obviously we want people to check out the book um, if they Mm -hmm. want to read more. But uh, Jenny Lynn just wanted to get your thoughts on anything that Heath had shared.
1: Oh, you know, I I mean, I was really struck like she's talking about a very common military thing, which is reintegration. Mm -hmm. We all experience after that, after even... Anything as short and simple as like a TAD or TDY, like temporary assigned duty. You know, it can be a couple weeks, it can be a month. The longest my family's done deployment wise is right at a year. And I think, man, I cannot imagine. I don't want to imagine what like our year long deployment and then reintegration post that look like times eight like God. I mean just the amount of growth I mean and 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 similar to some of these folks like when my husband deployed for that time I mean we had a baby and a toddler and so oh. he came home to two toddlers oh and you know they had words and they did things and they were Great. so much more advanced than they were when he left and subsequently like so was I and then he's been oh. over you know oh. in the Middle East like growing and changing and just to to impact that already Mm -hmm. difficult transition period with having been a prisoner of war and having been tortured. Like, Mm -hmm. I just feel so much when you say that out loud, because I know what it looked like for my own family with a year. And, you know, some unfortunate war stuff that happened in there and Mm -hmm. how long that took us as a family to work through. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I also think about, you know, you said that the the spouse was, you know, mom and dad. Well, they were mom, dad, and advocate. Right. Like, and so they were really playing like three very important roles. And you know, I I think about that a lot. You know, in the job that I do as as a, you know, paid personnel for mental health outreach, and also then doing it independently through podcasting and writing, like. You know, I I look at my own kids and I think, am I giving them enough because I'm doing all these things? And and some of those things have to be done in order for us to live life every day. Like right. I'm the only adult in the house, groceries have to be gotten. Now most of the time, let's be honest, they're they're being brought by Target, but I had to get on the oh. app and like, <laughs> you, have you have to know fill it them. <laughs> them, but. You know, I mean, thank goodness for modern conveniences. There are some things that I'm able to like automate and farm out these days. But it's like, you know, some of the things like I'll give you an example. Yesterday, we were driving home from an unexpected trip to take care of a family member (laughs) And my husband stayed behind. He's still with that family member, like working through some healthcare stuff. Mm. And so I drove 12 hours with my boys back to Virginia. And one of the things that came up, like right before we left, my husband was like, "Uh, the brakes on the van are being a little weird. I'm like, oh, that's great. I'd love to drive, you know, 600 miles in 12 hours, with the brakes being a little weird, (sighs) you know? And so I'm like, my anxiety is, you know, about, Eye level. Yeah. And, but that's not something I'm going to share with my kids. Like, I'm not going to freak them out on the way back home. But it was like, we ended up as we literally pulled into our neighborhood. Like, I shared that with them because then they were arguing about something and they're, you know, all these other things. There are always all these other factors. And your kids never have any idea that level of like things that you're holding for them so that they don't know. All of the things. And, you know, mine are at an age now where, like, as we pulled in the driveway and I told them I already have an appointment for the van, I was like, so on top of like doing the driving and doing the packing and making sure we stop for lunch and then, you know, mediating between the two of you, like, I was holding on to the fact that like the brakes on the van are probably not at their best. And my youngest was like, well, now you freaked me out. And I was like, well, of course it did. That's why I didn't tell you. <laughs> And it's like, you know, as this, as a military spouse, I've become so used to holding those things, like to make sure that all of my people are okay, having to reintegrate and then share that, not only share like parenting responsibilities and and being a part of our kids' lives and being a partner again, but like sharing those worries and things was really kind of the biggest hurdle yeah. Like my husband and I had post his last deployment was like I'd been the keeper of all the hard. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I can only imagine that after like you've done that for eight years. Because when you have toddlers, like you're not going to your toddler and going, So your dad's been shot down and we're not really sure where he is. Like you're just yeah. I'm not sure. Like, I mean, I've been that mom. I'm I'm not sure. Maybe he'll call later. Like mm. So to have to do that after eight years, like uh, the fact that several of those couples were able to work through that and stay married and then go on to do um, this, continue the service work that they'd both done is really incredible.
2: Well, and I think it goes back to the other spouses too, the, you know, the other military spouses, like a lot of those women said these were my sisters, they were meant more to me than my blood relatives who did not understand what was going on. But these, this reluctant sorority, you know, we got it and I didn't have to explain it to them. I could go with those worries you're talking about. Like I could unload that because they could not with the children you're right you hold that back and you know the spouse if they're deployed they're not dealing with that like today and you know these guys obviously in prison were had all kinds of other horrible stuff they were dealing with but the women were the keepers of that hard stuff for years and years and if they had Mm -hmm. not had those sisters i think mentally their mental health would have been so much worse so that, that's something they all mentioned to me. And this mm-hmm. is the great side of military life is these yeah. women that yeah. get it and you don't have to s- explain this to them. So I hear you on that. It's hard enough to just get through the day sometimes. So they had that plus, you know, oh gosh, my husband's probably being tortured right now. And like, yeah. when will they ever get back? So yeah, yeah, it's pretty incredible.
0: You know, Jenny Lynn, and you sharing your story, it just kind of inspired me to probably call my mom later. So, thank you for <laughs> there you go. Good. <laughs> well, happy to be of service today. You're welcome. <laughs> I mean, I love my mom. For the record, I definitely can acknowledge though that I don't call her enough. So
1: <laughs> for I all the
0: sacrifice you
2: know, that yeah,
0: yeah, 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 for yeah. sure. So that this was a great conversation to remind ourselves how incredible spouses and moms are, and and everything. Well, Keith, I want to end on an extremely exciting note after I talk about our sponsor, U.S. Vet Wealth. For our listeners, if ever you're curious to know about our show sponsor, U.S. Vet Wealth, I highly recommend that you check out our website, usvetwealth.com, that's U-S-V-E-T-W-E-A-L-T-H.com. In the recent months, Scott and I and our team have been working really hard to revamping the entire website so that it's more user-friendly, and more importantly, you know, provides digestible content for anyone, our military retirees, you know, service members and military spouses to understand. And so, I highly recommend that you check it out. One thing I want to do is give a shout out to some of the testimonials we have on our website because it's one thing for us to let you know what we do as a company, but it's another thing to have satisfied customers and supporters of our community to really share what we're about. So I want to give a quick shout out to Gary Redman, who's a Navy pilot. He has a testimonial on our website that reads the following, I can't say enough good things about Scott and the products he brings to the table when it comes to helping veterans navigate the military transition process. As someone who is currently going through the transition process, he helped me think well beyond my finances into career progression. He is a must when considering a mentor to successfully transition the military. Thank you, Gary, so much for that testimonial. And of course, to our listeners, you can check that out, read more and learn more about Gary at our website, usvetwealth.com. Another person I want to give a shout out to is retired Lieutenant Colonel Greg Lee. This is what he has to say about our company. I knew that if the government told me something was good for me, it probably wasn't telling me the whole truth. U.S. Vet Wealth exposed the secrets behind the Survivor Benefit Plan and VGLI, critical financial decisions I needed to make upon retirement. I enjoy my partnership with U.S. Vet Wealth and know that they have our veterans' best interest at heart. I don't want to do business anywhere else. Greg, thank you so much for that testimonial. And of course, if you want to read more testimonials or learn more about U.S. Vet Wealth, we highly recommend that you check out our sponsor website, usvetwealth.com. That's usvetwealth.com. One of the other titles that I introduced you as is you are a board member acting as a historian for the League of Wives Memorial Project in Coronado. And considering how you wrote an entire book about the League of Wives, this must mean so much to you. So can you please let us know what is going on (laughs) in, in Coronado at the time of this recording?
2: Oh, thank you for bringing this up because this yeah. does, this means more to me really than anything that's come out of this. Mm-hmm. We have and it started by the navy spouses in Coronado. I did not direct this project, but I've been very kindly included in it as as a board member. There's something called the League of Wives Memorial Committee and it was a bunch of military spouses like yourself who had read the book, had learned about the story. And, you know, many of these women in Coronado, where the story really begins, knew a lot of these women in the book personally. Um, some are still there. Many have passed away, but many knew them, but many didn't. And I've spoken mm-hmm. in Coronado many times to also the younger spouses who are like, what? I didn't know about any of this. Like, what? what is the story? So some of the spouses there took up this cause and formed this League of Wives Memorial Committee to create a memorial to these women, Sybil Stockdale, who was really the leader and the founder of this movement of, of wives, and many others who were in Coronado helping. And then, of course, it spreads to the East Coast, to Virginia Beach and Norfolk area, and all across the country among different spouses. But this particular memorial is really focusing on the spouses in the Coronado area, both mm-hmm. Air Force and Navy. So it, it's mainly those two groups. But we've already have a sculpture that's been sculpted, a lot of pro bono time given by. The sculptors, Chris Sladoff and Elizabeth Polnow, who I actually was just in Southern California at the Nixon Library working on my new book and, and had lunch with them. And they showed me oh. a small maquette, you know, a sort of a rendering that it was about this tall of mm. – of, and, and it's it's an incredible sculpture. It's all done kind of with 60s clothes. There's oh, even awesome. pocketbooks, you know, like from the 60s and like the suits And Sybil is the only figure on it because there were so many women involved. It would have just, Mm. we couldn't sculpt everyone, but her figure is sculpted. You know, it is Sybil. And then we have other spouses surrounding her to represent everyone else. So we are having, I believe the city council is having a vote later in July to decide if this will go forward or not. And we are very, very hopeful that it will. So it's great to be on your show talking about a cause that is super important to me. I mean, this would just, I mean, how many people write a book and then are able to see the result being a monument to the women in the book? And by the way, there, to our knowledge, doing the research, there are no monuments to military spouses, to, mm. to female spouses anywhere in the country that we've been able to find. Perhaps they exist, but we have not found it. So this would also be the first, which I think is nationally important. Mm-hmm. so we're really hopeful about this, and there is a lot of information. I think you ladies have it for the League of Wives Memorial Project. If you're interested, you can go online and learn more about it. So I'm just the historian for it, but it's the spouses that have put this together and, and pushed it forward.
0: I just appreciate how humble you are. You're like, I'm just the historian. It's like, well, <laughs> it's because of your book.
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> Well, thank you, but I'm just the narrator. Like that's how I am in all my books. Like I don't mm-hmm. want to ever be. I'm not in it, you know. But I think it's important to be. You're the messenger, the narrator, mm-hmm. the tour guide. Like that's how I like to say it a lot of the time. I am just the tour guide, but the women are the ones that did it. I would never yeah. be. I would have been like I can't even imagine. I'm not brave enough to ever consider. I just wouldn't have been able to make it. So it's just an <laughs> honor to be able to narrate and and show you. These women—they're the ones that deserve the credit. So I'm—I'm just lucky I found them and I can write about them.
0: You know, this is really what I love about bringing on our civilian counterparts on the show—is kind Mm -hmm. of recognizing the yin and yang to our relationship. It's like you know, service members, military-connected family members—you know, it's like we—we do—we sacrifice for to protect our country and all the things that that go with that. And you know, speaking from your perspective. It's like you have this attitude of like I mean I would never be able to do that. The least I can do is right. honor your story and share your story and amplify it. And so Keith, I just want to say thank you for that. You know, thank you for oh. taking the time to learn about these military wives and I know it's really gratifying to the spouses to see this monument should it, you know, be approved, but I also know that it's going to be very gratifying for you to know that like you were part of the experience, you were part of the tour guide that led this to hopefully being possible, <laughs> oh, and, yeah. and I'm sure we'll be in touch. I will be in touch with you to see if this goes through.
2: <laughs> yes, any you know, always happy to do a follow up. You know, hopefully yeah. at the dedication, and we will make sure you ladies have press passes. Like that's another thing. You know, if you want to come <laughs> to that. You guys are on it early. I will find you this press- <laughs> Oh man! A podcast from the dedication ceremony. If we are lucky enough to have this go through, please. Yeah, we'll work something out. I know some people, so we'll work it out for you.
0: Well, that would be a fun excuse to go back to San Diego. Right?
2: <laughs> yeah, right. I think so. I mean, you should totally do that. Put it. It's a business expense. Totally. Exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love it. God's gonna love us for that. <laughs> You know, just listening to you talk about being the historian on the board one, I actually know a lot of women on the board. I'm having just come from San Diego, back to Virginia Beach, you know, and I just, once again, you know, struck by the way that this book has made room for the connection between Vietnam era spouses and post 911 and like Mm -hmm. a brand new League of Wives is pushing forward a story for, you know, a bygone era. And I just, I think it is really neat. I am very excited to see where the monument goes and it come to fruition in Coronado, because not only is this an incredible story of the power of, of people coming together, but, you know, in present day, it's it's more people coming together to make sure that we can, you know, adequately honor the past. And that that's really really special especially as a navy spouse who's lived in both virginia beach and right. san diego
2: right there's so much there as you well know there's so much go between between those two posts and so i think that is interesting and and my other hope for this is with the book we have an exhibit that's you know continues to tour about it perhaps one day we'll have the movie come out about it i mean i th- i hope all these platforms what I'd really like to have happen is to get this in the classrooms. Like for young girls, also though for military spouses, Mm -hmm. I know they have these, you know, the spouse classes and I've suggested this over and over. It has not happened. So help me push. I mean, military spouses need history. They need books. This needs to be Mm -hmm. the first of many books. Like the connection you make with 9-11 spouses, that's Mm -hmm. a whole book right there, you know, like, and it needs to just, continue like building on this and make it important enough that it gets in the military curriculum, in the Mm -hmm. college curriculum. I'd like to see it in the high school curriculum. Mm I mean, you know, there's no lack of me wanting that story to be out there because then it gives people something to hang on to. And then there's like almost an instructional how-to guide of how to organize over whatever the cause is. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm you know and that that's been you know genuinely that's been very instructional for me to hear about the post 911 spouse i mean hopefully this can be something for people to hang on to so i think it it's boundless the way not my work in particular just the story and the way that yeah. it plays out i hope it has a ripple effect that way
1: Spoken like an educator. I love it.
2: Well, you're a teacher <laughs> and museum educator, so I, it's hard for me not to do that. But,
1: Same. Yeah. Same. There you
2: go. See, it, it just all starts with that, which is great. Like, it gives you such a good basis for so many things. So,
0: I love that. And I also love the whole, you know, I hope this causes a, a ripple effect as well. And I think it will. I think it has. And and I hope that it continues to do so. It's has uh, record
1: saying Amazon sales are going to spike post this podcast. <laughs> love it. <laughs> I, love
2: it. I hope <laughs> I, I will never say no to that. That's great.
0: I think as we wrap up here, Heath, I'd like to get some parting thoughts from you and also some call to action. You already mentioned some just now, like, you know, study this book to learn how to organize and stuff like that. But yes. to ensure that should this monument come through, do you have any advice on how to ensure that although this is the first, it doesn't have to be the last? What can our <laughs> listeners do moving forward? now that they've listened to this conversation?
2: Yeah, well, I think, you know, leadership and organizing, that's been kind of one of our big themes today that's just come up naturally through speaking. I mean, I think study, this is a case study that people should be studying across the board in leadership. There's no doubt. I mean, this is the way, this collaborative shedding of sort of the prejudices and all these things, stripping away of things that surround us to focus on the main goals. So if, but our politicians in Washington would look at this as a model, and perhaps we could elect some female representatives in state legislatures, female president, come on. I mean, how many, how long is it going to take us to do that? Any of these women, you know, that I studied in the book oh, would have been an amazing politician, CEO, you know, they could have done anything in a different era. So I, you know, I hope people will take that away. I hope he also with these monuments that one thing we've talked about with this monument, and this is thinking way into the future, I would like to see this monument replicated at, at different, like different military out, not outposts, but Norfolk is a good example. Norfolk, Virginia beach at that, at Oceana. I mean, they should have a similar, Monument. And and the way we've kind of conceptualized this is that Coronado, of course, has Sybil Stockdale. So in Virginia Beach, Norfolk, maybe you have Louise Mulligan and Jane Denton, you know, pictured, and then the other wives behind them that are sort of a composite mm-hmm. of others. I'd like to see that because, again, just like why are there no female presidents? Why are there no monuments to military? Spouses and it shouldn't just be in Coronado, it should be across the country. They should replicate this. There should be committees, you know, across the country to do something similar to honor these families and the children who are also we didn't talk too much about today, but they also bear the burden of the Mm -hmm. service man or service woman's time away. So, you Mm -hmm. know, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see more books about military families that maybe build on this just like we Jenny Lynn and I were talking about the post-9-11 spouses. I mean there ought to be scholarship about this. This needs to be a serious like whole branch of military studies. I'd like to see a lot of the military academies pay a lot more attention to the the families and the spouses and not just focus on the service person themselves. It's a unit, you know, it's a, mm-hmm. the spouses are the backup team, but they're not the backups. They're really equal. It's home front and then the battlefield or just the duty station wherever you are. So, I mean, it just needs to be a more holistic approach, I think, that I haven't quite seen yet. I've seen the evolution mm-hmm. talking to women like you, but I don't think the military is there yet. And I know the government's not there in terms of how things are treated. I mean, back to the finances, we talked before we started the podcast about the widow's tax. I mean, Mm -hmm. think Mm -hmm. how long that took. And I Mm -hmm. wrote op-eds about it too, because I was so angry about that. That's horrible. It's finally been rectified. But I mean, it took how many years to get that? I mean, that was ridiculous. That was something like 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. of red tape. So let's get rid of this red tape. Like, give the military families and servicemen and women deserve everything. You all deserve to be at the top. But so often you're treated really, it's like second class citizens, just like my ladies in the book. So that is unbelievable to me that it's still that way. So I just hope that all these things monuments, books, exhibits like, I hope that will all go to serve doing better treatment, better, more equal treatment of, of the families and, and the children along with the service person. So yeah you know, I could go on. I just, I'll just get <laughs> mad. We'll all get mad. So, Let's go grab some wine and, and share gonna, what we really think. I think <laughs> wine. I think next time we do this, we'll have to do it, you know, at one of those great bars on Coronado where you can just
1: there you go. feel there you go. all the skills.
2: And um, yeah. yeah, we can talk to them about this and have some wine or beer. But Anyway, it's a passion of mine for sure. Like I just think it's it's a fascinating subject and it's one that needs more scholarship and more people to write about, write yeah. books about it.
1: Well, I think having the book out there in the world is a great first step as a bridge. I think, you know, as you were talking, you were like, you know, we should have more of these and more people should know. My experience as a post 9/11 military spouse is, you know, I mean, I represent 0.25% That is a quarter of 1% of the American population, because we are currently at less than 0.5%, so less than half a percent of people who are in the military in the US. And so, you know, it has been my experience that I'm sure there are lots of people, you know, if that we have civilian listeners listening to this, who this is going to absolutely open their eyes to the kinds of things we do. My personal experience has been is that I am the person that brought my own civilian family into this military lifestyle. We did not live it prior to me marrying somebody in the navy, and unless you have a piece like that, or you are involved in history like you are with you know museum and 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 education, it's not that people don't want to understand and to help and do the things is that they honestly just don't know. Right. I will never forget being at an event where I spoke for theater of war. And it's basically sharing your experience with war from whatever, you know, Viewpoint you have, and so mine was as the military spouse at home while my husband went to war, both on a ship and both on on land. Wow, which is weird for the Navy anyway. But and after this event, you know, there was like a cocktail hour, and people were encouraged to speak to the panelists, and I had a woman come up and and you know go, I just didn't know there were people like you, and I was like, wow. I don't know what to do with that information, you know, and Mm -hmm. here, like almost a decade later, there are so many things I wish I would have said, like, well, tell me more about that. And I'm happy to tell you more about me. Mostly then I was just shocked. Like, what do you mean? Like, did you really not think that people who go to war have families at home? And I, you know, it just if you don't see it with your own eyes it's hard to know it's there and so i think you know you having this book out there and telling the story of these women who are part of really like a volunteer well during vietnam there was a draft but let's not get into that but now currently the current you know is all volunteer like it's hard to know all that's happening because it's not affecting your daily life and so having books like this out there and monuments saying like hey this is a this is an important piece of our history Is really a great bridge to getting more people on board with the lifestyle the military families lead.
2: I appreciate that. I think it is making it's awareness, just Mm -hmm. people aware. They aren't what they don't experience, they don't have empathy for unless you put it in front of them and show them. Right.
0: So, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. And that's why we're so grateful to be doing this show (laughs) in this day and age. I'm really grateful to have this opportunity to amplify people in the community and for the community. And Heath, you are a part of that. So just thank you again for your heart and everything that you've done to really document these stories in your book. And just crossing fingers for the monument to passing Coronado, we will keep tabs on that. And last but not least, why don't you let our listeners know, should they want to reach out to you? or you know, learn more about the monument, go ahead and share some resources about, right now, some links or possibly ways to get in touch with you if they want to reach out.
2: Sure, sure. So, and perhaps you all can post them. I can type them in the chat or I can just say out loud what they are, uh, but- Yeah, you can say it out
0: loud and you okay. can put it in the chat if you want, because I could just copy and paste it for the show notes.
2: <laughs> oh, great. Okay, well, yeah. yeah. So I will put in now the League of Wives Memorial Project I think I sent earlier because I I think you have that. And then I got my website, www.heathleyauthor.com. That's where you can find out more about me and my books. I'll put that in the chat. I'm trying to think of other things that would be useful. Yeah. Well, the League of Wives Memorial Project, which Mm -hmm. I think you have. Mm -hmm. Those are probably the two best ones to find things out about this story And then there is a touring exhibit called the League of Wives, Advocates and Allies that I curated through Bob Dole's, Senator Bob Dole's Political Institute that is touring the country. And um, soon we'll be coming to a new location, which is is a big one. I can't say yet what that is, but I'll let you guys know more about that. And there is stuff about that on the Heathly author website. So those are are the best places to find me. And you can also email me through my website if you have questions.
0: Perfect. Well, Heath, it's been just such a pleasure chatting with you today. I know Jenny Lynn was extremely excited for this as well. So Jenny Lynn, any parting thoughts to Heath before we go?
1: I mean, I'm just really, really happy she was here. My own author self is totally nerding out about the whole oh, thing. I and so I like really, that. really enjoyed our conversation today.
2: Oh, well, I enjoyed it. And thank you, Jenny Lynn, for also reaching out to me. I kind of like stalked you guys on <laughs> LinkedIn because I was like, I want to be on that show. That looks like- <laughs> what an honor. That looks like a great show. So I would say Excellent. it was me nerding out on you ladies versus <laughs> yeah. the other. At this, any any chance for people to be forced to listen to me as we've talked about <laughs> teenagers that are like not could care less and argue with me about the Geneva Conventions of War that I know nothing about that that <laughs> didn't go well the other day mm, you know oh, mm, boy they think you're an idiot so thank you for not thinking that that's great <laughs> that's an upgrade for me
0: oh well I always like to give people the the benefit of the doubt and believe them. <laughs> And, you know, time will either promote you or expose you, as they say. But it's very true. For the most part, I do believe you. And you've obviously done a lot of research in this book. And it's been such a joy speaking with you today, Heath.
2: Oh, you too. Enjoyed speaking to you, ladies. Hope we will meet in person in Coronado and have that drink.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, there you have it. If you all want to get a hold of Heath, just check out the show notes of this episode. We hope you really enjoyed today's conversation. And we look forward to chatting with you in the next episode. Tune in next time. Hey, thanks again for joining us at Holding Down the Fort by U.S. Wealth. Once again, I am your co-host, Jen Amos. And I'm Jenny Lynn Stroop. Thank you so much for listening to our show. If you've gotten a
1: lot out of our conversation today, be sure to leave us a five-star rating review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser
0: or you can leave us a kind LinkedIn recommendation on our LinkedIn profiles.
1: Learn more about Holding Down the Fort by visiting holdingdownthefortpodcast.com. And there you'll also be able to find us on social media and how to contact us directly.
0: Thank you all so much for joining us. Until next time.